Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4. The um, text will be on the screen for you, but you may want to have your Bibles open to follow along as well. Job chapter number four, we'll skip around a bit, we're going to begin this morning with Eliphaz's response to Job, verses one to eleven. Job four, verses one through eleven, and here's what God's word says. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember... Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered." As you know, Job suffered unimaginable pain. His children are dead. His estate destroyed. His health deteriorating. And all he could do is mourn and pain in pain and wish that God would just finish the job. And that's what we saw back in Job chapter 3. The last sermon in this series considered the question, is life worth living? And we looked at Job's dramatic lament in the third chapter. And if you missed that message, in short, I want to tell you, yes, life is worth living. Because the God of hope lives. And so long as he lives, there is hope. But as we zoom into these early chapters of the book of Job, we find ourselves still in the dark. Still in the ash heap. Still suffering and trying to make sense of what's going on. And in chapter 3, Job breaks the silence and speaks his mind. And now, as we move on to chapter 4, we find for the next 30 chapters of this book, a back-and-forth dialogue between Job and his three friends, simply trying to diagnose the problem and offer the solution. The first one to speak is a man named Eliphaz the Temanite. And you may have noticed from these opening verses... That his main thesis is this. Job has sinned, and that's why he's suffering. Verse 8 makes that very clear, where it says, As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and trouble 
reap the same. So basically, Eliphaz is saying, Job, the reason you're in this mess, it's your fault. You plowed iniquity, and you're reaping the consequences of your actions. This is a simple cause and effect theology that is meant to explain everything. Because after all, if Job were righteous, he wouldn't suffer. Right? Right? Oops. Chapters 1 and 2 are very clear. Job is upright. Job is blameless. Job is considered righteous in God's eyes, and he is in favor with God, and yet he suffers severely. Brethren, regardless of the strength of your faith in God, and even if you came today and you don't have any faith in God, we have all grappled with this question. Why do the righteous suffer? Why do the righteous suffer? And it is this question that's raised here in these verses that I hope by the grace of God we can address today. Will we answer it fully? No. But we will address it and arrive at where the Bible wants us to arrive. So would you join with me in prayer as we ask the author of this book to help us to address this question. Oh, Father, we come before your inspired text and we have many of us, if not all of us, have asked this question, why me? Why do bad things happen to good people? Help us to have a biblical perspective, not a worldly one, not an emotional one, but a biblical one. And that in discovering truth, you would receive the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Why do the righteous suffer? The perennial question. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've probably asked this question, and the chances are it's been asked to you. Oh yeah, you believe in God, a God that is all-powerful and all-loving? Well, why does he allow this to happen? How could God permit evil in this world? Millions of innocent, aborted babies... Children diagnosed with fatal diseases. Hungry people all around the world. Unexpected natural disasters that wipe out entire communities. And senseless acts of violence. The argument goes like this. If God were all loving and good, then he couldn't tolerate the existence of violence and disease and evil. Therefore, if evil exists, God must not be powerful enough to stop it. On the flip side, if God were all-powerful and almighty, and evil and suffering continue to exist, then obviously God cannot be good and loving, because why would he allow this to happen if he could stop it? So the idea is, we have no good explanation for wickedness, therefore your God cannot exist. In academic circles, this is called theodicy. Theodicy is a word that just means how we can try to reconcile the the existence of suffering and the goodness of God. And there are different explanations. As you look around the world, as you consider the hungry, the thirsty, the dying, one, probably the most popular, is loss of faith. There are atheists traveling the world today who used to be believers And many of them will give intellectual answers, but when you dig deep into their story, it's because they could not reconcile the suffering that they saw with what they believed about God. 
Another response is pride. If I were God, I wouldn't have it done this way. There are different religious attempts to answer this question. Dualism, polytheism, sort of this battle between good and evil on equal footing, going against one another. Or today, especially in the Western world, there's naturalism. Everything just came to be randomly over, over millions and millions of years of, of unguided processes, and we're just a bunch of molecules just kind of floating around, and there's no ultimate purpose to life, and you only live once, so just live life to the fullest and leave those questions to others. In 1982, Rabbi Harold Kushner came out with a famous book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. This is a man who believed in the existence of God, but his basic argument was that God is loving and he's doing his best, but he's not all powerful enough to stop evil. And then you have the response of some Christian apologists. And quite frankly, some of their responses disgust me because they trivialize this question. I remember one day I attended a debate between a Christian apologist and an atheist or an agnostic. And the Christian's answer to this question was basically this, and I quote, This is the world God had to create in order to set things up the way he wanted, which includes plate tectonics. I don't know if you remember learning about that in middle school, but we're all kind of, our continents are floating on these plates that sometimes move and cause earthquakes. So his answer was that God had to create this world and in this world, it had to include plate tectonics. And plate tectonics do lead to earthquakes, which leads to suffering. Without plate tectonics, he says, Earth's land would be submerged to a depth of several thousand feet. Fish might survive in such environment, but not humans. In other words, this is the best God can do. But because he did it this way, we have to accept the suffering that comes with it. Now, I say this all to you this morning to remind you that there are many attempts to answer this question, and they all fall short. We must wrestle with this question, and there are no easy answers. And as I've said throughout this whole series in the book of Job, there's no simple bumper sticker answer to these deep questions. Job raises questions that resonate deep within the human soul, and we trivialize that agony when we give just a one-word or one-sentence answer. And so my goal here, I'll say from the outset, is not that you leave today with some memorized formula to mindlessly repeat whenever someone asks, why do the righteous suffer? Rather, I hope that you can see the struggle of this question while at the same time holding on by faith to precious eternal truths found in the book of Job and other places in the Bible that point us, however dimly, to God, that we may by faith glorify Him and find that even in the midst of suffering, there is joy and there is peace. And it comes from knowing God. In the book of James, I think I have it here. I don't. But in the book of James, chapter 5, verse 1, the Bible says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
The New Testament uses Job as an example of someone who remained steadfast. That means he remained consistent. That means he remained dependable and faithful. Perfect? No. All the answers? Definitely not. But did he remain steadfast under pressure? Ultimately, he did. He is an example for us to emulate on when bad things happen to good people. So that brings us now to this next section in our series of the book of Job. The fifth part of this series, and again, this covers 30 chapters. I'm not going to cover all 30 today. Just snippets from each one. Is Job's friends begin to respond to his plight. So Job spoke in chapter 3, and now Eliphaz speaks in chapter 4. And he's the first one. And, and you know, his, his sort of, the way he addresses Job is a little ironic, maybe even a little sarcastic. He says, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble needs, but now it has come to you. What Eliphaz is saying is that all your life, Job, you've been the helper. You've helped those in suffering. But now you are experiencing suffering, and let me tell you why. That's basically how he begins his speech. In order for us to understand why Eliphaz and then Bildad and Zophar, these three friends, say what they say, we have to understand a principle that many in the ancient Near East believed, and I think many still believe today. And it's called the retribution principle. The retribution principle is vital for us to understand the whole book of Job. They were operating under a worldview that is defined like this. God runs the universe in such a way that we reap what we sow with obedience and piety leading to blessing and fullness and disobedience leading to cursing and emptiness. They saw the world in such cut and dry, black and white, cause and effect relationships. God is just, so if you do good, God will reward you. God is just, so if you do evil, God will punish you. And that's that. That answers every question. So therefore, Job, if you are suffering by mathematical formula, you must have done something wrong. It's that simple in their mind. And Eliphaz is not alone. I want to show you this throughout the whole entire book of Job, but I'm not going to go to every verse, but look look what Bildad says in chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. Bildad says, Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Talk about what not to say to someone who's grieving. He just lost his children. And and Bildad says in verse 4, Well, your children sinned, And so God delivered them to their transgression. Job, it's your fault, and it's your children's fault. Because this is the way the world works. Zophar is not much better. In chapter 11, Zophar says, If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity, that's another word for sin, is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish, You will be secure and not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. 
and your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. And you will look around and take rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is to breathe their last. Have you ever been in a situation where you are truly suffering, truly frustrated, truly overwhelmed, and then someone just gives you their advice? You're like, thanks a lot. This is what Zophar's doing. He, he has good intentions, perhaps. Look, if you, if you dissect some of these words, he wants Job, verse 18, to feel secure. He wants him to have hope. He wants him to rest in security. But the conditions, going back to uh, verse number uh, 13, was you have to prepare your heart. You have to stretch out your hand toward God. And if you have iniquity, you have to put it away. Verse 14. In other words, he's saying, Job, you want relief from all of this? Repent of your sin. Zophar's explanation is the same as Bildad's explanation, which is the same as Eliphaz's explanation. Said in different words, said in different ways, with different nuance between the three, but the three friends are basically saying the same thing. God is justly punishing you, so repent of your sin. It's as simple as that. And that is the retribution principle. Now, to make things a little more complicated, because some of you might be thinking, wait a second, doesn't God teach us this? Isn't this, the, um, isn't this coming from the Old Testament? Isn't there a reaping and sowing principle in the Bible? Well, yes. And that's what makes this more complicated. And this is why we can't settle for uh, simplistic answers. Uh, we were reading in our, our family time before dinner each night the last few months in the book of Deuteronomy. And as we read the book of Deuteronomy, we couldn't help but see this all over the pages. I mean, God basically says to covenant Israel, he says, if you do good, your crops will grow. Your family will be large. You'll win military victories. If you do not do good, if you turn to other gods, if you, if you sin against the Lord, what will happen? You'll reap the cursings. You'll lose battles. Your children will be stillborn. There'll be a famine in the land. There'll be barrenness in your family, and so on. Even the New Testament tells us you reap what you sow. Eric Ortland points this out, that in the beginning of Job itself, there is a reaping and sowing principle. There's supposed to be a connection. If you, if you just go back to Job chapter 1, verse 1, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And then in verses 2 to 5, it tells us he had a big family. He had 7,000 sheep and 500 oxen. He used to go to a feast, and his, his sons used to feast in their houses. There's a connection between the fact that Job is righteous and good and that Job has all this blessing. So the retribution principle is based upon a pattern we see in Scripture. Now here's where it gets even more complicated. At the end of the book of Job, which we won't go there right now, God rebukes the three friends. So even though their view of the world has some basis in truth, they were ultimately wrong. It wasn't because Job sinned. We know that they're wrong because God says 
that they're wrong. And this, as one commentator says, is a surprise to all of us because when you read it, it almost sounds like good doctrine. We want things to work in predictable ways, don't we? Why why do we get frustrated every day? Because things that should work don't work. Right? You turn the key in the ignition. What should happen? Your, Your engine turns on. So when it doesn't turn on, like, wait a second, this is supposed to work. If you eat right and you sleep enough, you're supposed to be healthy, right? What do you do with those people who are as healthy as can be in terms of their habits and then are diagnosed with a fatal disease? You take care of your stuff, it should last long, but sometimes it breaks. Be nice to others, they'll be nice to you. Um, Not quite. Sometimes the Wi-Fi goes out for no reason. Sometimes it seems every traffic jam and every red light was ordained for you. Sometimes you are in the midst of conflict that is unreasonable and you cannot believe why someone would be upset about that thing. Or even worse, and tragically, you find yourself in the midst of an act of senseless violence. And you say, but I took my vitamins. I said my prayers. I slept eight hours. I drank enough water. Why are these things happening? Here's why. The world is not predictable because we live in a fallen world. Yes, indeed, there is a general principle of reaping and sowing. And none of what I'm saying this morning should negate the fact that what you put into it, you will get out of it, generally speaking. But the world is more complicated than that. God is not a genie in a bottle. He's not... Here I am at your service. Just do these things and I'll give you this. Don't do these things and this will happen. Life is much more complicated because we live in a fallen world. It's not predictable. Things seem uneven. We don't always reap what we sow. Generally, yes, but not always. Justice is not always going to be served. Not in this lifetime. There will be wicked criminals who get away free. And there will be righteous people who are locked up who have not committed a crime. And this goes on around the world today, even now. And when we see these things, when we see the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, we question God. Is he really fair? Is he really just? We begin to challenge him. The book of Job then presents to us three men who are wrong-headed in their arguments to try to diagnose and treat his suffering. They come from a culture that understands the world according to this hardline retribution principle. And this book is written to help us understand that while reaping and sowing are generally true, this fallen world features other factors that disrupt the flow. So Job's suffering is unique then. It doesn't fit into neat categories. These friends are not helpful. They dismiss his agony with predictable answers. They weaponize their theology in, 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 a, in a right way. Well, not in the right way, but using that term correctly. As um, one commentator says, their defense of God turned into a defense of their own theology at the expense of their friend Job. In other words, they, they, even though we commended them in chapter 2 for sitting with Job for a week, as soon as they opened their mouths, foolishness, unhelpfulness. Because they were so beholden to their theology, they lacked compassion for their friend. 
I remember a time not too long ago in our own church plant's history, I think it was the first or second year we were a church plant, there was someone in our midst who was also very beholden to their theology, a theology that we don't accept, a theology that is coming from more of a hyper-charismatic background. But this person was with us for probably a year or so, and we worked with them, tried to help them not to spread divisive theology amongst the people. And one day, another one of our people brought with them a family member, um, their younger brother, who happened to be autistic. And his manifestations of his autism were, were quite disruptive. Many of you were there, and, and you dealt with it very compassionately. Even in the midst of the sermon, there was some screaming and some, some disruptive noises. And I saw that our church was trying to love him and love his sibling who brought him, and very thankful for that. This one person who was, again, very beholden to their theology said something to the person who brought the child that reminds me of this, very unhelpful. As they were explaining to the person that this is my brother and he has autism and he's, we're seeking therapy and we're seeking ways to help him with medicine, they were told that you don't need medicine, you don't need therapy, and something along the lines of, can't you see? He has a demon. This is not autism. And they wanted to cast out the demon instead. Now that comes from a, a way of thinking about mental health and demonology, and we can debate all of that at, at some point, but this is a great or actually poor example of using one's theology in such a way that you lack compassion. You lack humanity. You lack understanding. Just using the Bible as a club. This is what Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz were doing. There's some truth to what they're saying, but they don't see the big picture about the unique suffering of Job. In chapter 5, I want to show you what Eliphaz says. Chapter 5. He says, call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? This is him talking to Job. To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest and he takes it out of thorns and the thirsty paint after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust. Notice trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. If you take this part of Eliphaz's speech in chapter 5, he's basically saying, Job, you're a fool. You are like the fool. That's why you're suffering. Well, Eliphaz goes on in verses 8 to 16. I won't read all of it for sake of time. But in verses 8 to 16 of chapter 5, he talks about the justice of God. So, Job, you're a fool. God is just. But here's how his speech ends. Chapter, still in chapter 5, verse 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. That's true. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword. 
You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall also know that your offspring shall be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this, is we, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. What's Eliphaz's argument here? He's saying God is disciplining you, so embrace it. Repent and you will be healed. Again, I hope you see the complexity of this question. There's truth to what Eliphaz is saying. It's rooted in much of the blessings and cursings of the Old Testament. God is just. It's the fool who comes to ruin. God is just. He rewards his people. He protects his people. His people will will, will live to old age. But the application is missed. The application is missed on Eliphaz because he says, therefore, God is disciplining you. And if you just embrace that discipline and repent, you will be blessed. The retribution principle. This is his argument to his hurting and crying and grieving friend. You're a sinful fool and God is punishing you, so man up. And Bildad says again, he comes alongside, chapter 8, kind of says the same thing. How long will you say these things? In the words of your mouth, be a great wind. There's compassion for you. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? And again, we see if your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. So they don't understand that Job's suffering is unique. We have to remember that you and I have insight that his friends did not have. His friend, before we, we say how foolish they are, they, they were, they get rebuked later, Before we do that in pride, understand this. They are operating under what they know. But you and I know more. Why do we know more? Because we have the whole book of Job. We have inspired revelation. And God tells us what we need to know about Job. He tells us from the very beginning in verse 1 that Job was blameless and upright and feared God and turned away from evil. The narrator, the inspired narrator, is telling you and me, the reader, Job is righteous. Job is upright. So when the friends come along and say, you're suffering because you're a sinner, you're suffering because you're a sinner, you and I should know they're wrong. That's not why Job is suffering. There is not one particular sin in his life that leads to his suffering. So he has a unique sense here. Now, I know this, this challenges us, right? This challenges us a lot. It's like, wait a second. Pastor, are you preaching heresy here? Don't you know Romans 3? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, none that does good. Are you saying that there are perfect people? I'm saying what the Bible says. I'm saying that what the Bible says about Job is exactly what the Bible says about Noah. That he found favor in the eyes of the Lord because he was perfect and upright. What does that mean? I hope you know it doesn't mean that any one mortal is perfect in the sense that God is perfect. Romans 3 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Job falls short of the glory of God. Noah falls short of the glory of God. Abraham falls short of the glory of God. Yes, absolutely, 100%. None of what I'm saying negates the fact that Job was born in original sin. That Job inherits the guilt of Adam because he's a son of Adam. Of course. And if you go back to our first sermon, we established that Job himself later on confesses that he's a sinner. And every time he sins, he repents. So when the Bible uses words like upright, perfect, it's not saying flawless, spotless, as if there's never been a sin that ever occurred or was acted upon by Job. Obviously not. Job is a sinner like you and me. But he's also righteous. Figure that one out. Why is he righteous? He's righteous the same reason why Abraham was righteous. Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Job feared God and turned away from evil and God counted him as righteous. And just like you, my brother or sister, who are in Christ, you know that you are chief of sinners. But in God's eyes, you are righteous. Job doesn't understand all of that. And his friends certainly don't understand all of that. But the narrator wants us to know that when Job suffers, it is not due to anything in him. There's something else going on here. Job fed the homeless, took in orphans, looked for ways to help people. He was the real deal. He was authentic. Satan hated that. Satan's challenge to God was the reason that Job blesses you is because you blessed him. Satan believes in the retribution principle too. And the whole point of the story is take away everything from Job. Will he still bless God? Will he still fear God? And Job is shown to be a man of integrity. Remember, as we mentioned several times as we examine the book of Job, Job shows us the greatest contrast in the world at that time. We have the most righteous person in all the land and the most blessed person in all the land suffering the worst kind of suffering. He's blessed and he's suffering. He's considered righteous in God's eyes and yet he suffers severely. Why? And don't cheapen that. Don't cheapen that by saying, yeah, well, he's a sinner too, so he deserves hell. He should just be grateful for every breath that he has. We really need God to show us why this is. Teach us something. Eliphaz knew the truth. No one can come close to God's righteousness. Eliphaz was right to say in verse number 17 of chapter 4, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Can a mortal man be right before God? How can we who are mortals, born in Adam, sinners by nature, ever be right with God? Eliphaz is right to ask that question. And we'll come back to that question later. But the author of the book wants us to know that Job is righteous because God says he is. Now, if we take typical answers from Scripture as to why suffering happens, and these are all true, one is me. There are many examples in the Bible, and you could apply to your life and mine, that suffering does happen because of me, because of you, because of something you've done. There's no doubt about it. We, we, we suffer loss because we have made sinful choices. 
And if we suffer loss because we made sinful choices, the answer then is to repent. And if you repent of your sin, God promises to forgive you and you will find freedom. That's one way suffering might come to us in our lives. Another way might just simply be others. Sometimes others, whether in the church or in the world, wrong us. And our responsibility then is to rebuke, to correct. And if they repent and they're believers, then there's hope for reconciliation. And if necessary, even restitution. Sometimes the cause of suffering is found in others. And then still, sometimes we suffer simply because of lack in our lives. Lack of wisdom. Lack of character. God may use trials in your life to grow you. To grow you in love to grow you in patience, to grow you in discipline in Him. Oftentimes, God disciplines us because he's, he's trying to teach us something, and if we embrace that teaching, we then grow in wisdom and knowledge or character. But then you have this one. Because again, the book of Job is making clear there was nothing lacking in Job there was nothing sinful that would lead to this suffering. Here is a man who is going his own way, sincerely and authentically serving God, and suffering comes upon him. Because sometimes the righteous suffer. In an article called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, Michael Corin says that the materialist and the atheist, those who would deny God, believe that at death all is over. Life is finished. It is done. We are dust. We are mere food for worms. And to these people, pain has no meaning other than what it is, pure, unadulterated suffering without any redeeming purpose. I ask you this morning, while I've tried to make clear that there really is no final answer for us in this life, for this question, do you believe that God has a purpose? Do you believe that suffering is just meaningless and random, or do you believe that even God in His goodness and His justice and His love might allow such wickedness and suffering to come upon His people? And even in that, there is a good purpose behind it. Beyond our comprehension, can you trust God even when things don't make sense? When a child goes to the doctor and needs a needle for whatever it might be, the child doesn't understand why it's so painful. And maybe with the limited comprehension of that child, the doctor is not going to be able to discuss with the child and explain here's why I'm causing you pain now to relieve you of pain that might come but yet there's a trust and maybe that trust is through the parents but it's for the child's good and for his healing even though he doesn't understand you and I don't have to understand everything we don't have to make sense of everything we don't have to dot every I and cross every T to know that God is good that even suffering can be used, that even suffering could have a purpose, that even suffering could be redeemed. We see that redemption sort of language hinted at all throughout the book of Job. 
We see Eliphaz talk about being redeemed from the pit. Redeemed from suffering. Job talks about his Redeemer. And I believe that what we need to see in this unpredictable and fallen world is God as our Redeemer. The God who redeems. We saw throughout the book of Job now that He is the God who made the stars and He's worthy to worship. He's the God who rules the seas. He will defeat evil finally. He is the God who draws near to us in our suffering. He is the God of hope who makes life worth living. And today for a few moments I just want to dwell on the fact that He is the God who redeems. He is pleased to redeem. He is, in His very nature, He redeems His people. Redemption. We sing about it, right? Precious Redeemer and friend, we sang about it earlier today. We talk about how God redeems us. What does that mean? Redemption means to secure the release or recovery of persons or things by the payment of a price. To secure the release of someone by the payment of a price. To let someone go free, but it's going to cost the person who does the redemption. Right now, Job is suffering from the bondage of a fallen world. And he needs to know that there is some hope of ultimate redemption. This is what God delights to do. All throughout the book of uh, all, all throughout the Old Testament, we find that he is the redeemer. The psalmist in 78.35 talks about the children of Israel, remembering that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. He redeemed them from Egypt. He brought them out of slavery. The price was paid for their redemption. Think about being a child of Israel growing up in Egypt. You're not there for any fault of your own. There's no cause and effect. I did this, therefore I'm reaping this. You're simply born into captivity. But God, who loves his people and is faithful to his people, redeemed his people from that suffering. Because he is the God who redeems. And Job knew about this. We talked about this last time, but I want to go back here again. In Job chapter 9, one of the, some of the most beautiful words in the book of Job, when he says, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Does Job have a perfect Christology here? Does he know who Jesus is? Does he know the story of Mary and Joseph? Does he know Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? No, of course not. But there's a glimpse, isn't there? There's something dim. Job has confidence in the God that he serves. He can't explain why he's suffering. His friends can't explain why he's suffering. But Job does not give up on hope, does he? Because he knows that his Redeemer lives. He can't explain all of this. This is poetry, of course. But if you say, okay, Job, when you say in verse 25, he will stand upon the earth, is that, where is that? Is it Mount of Olives? Like, he doesn't know. He doesn't know the timetable. 
And by the way, most of the end time specialists on YouTube don't know either. But what we do know is that he's coming back. We do know that he lives. We do know that he's the redeemer who buys us from our captivity. Right now, you might be experiencing some suffering and it feels like captivity. It feels like bondage, undeserved. Like, I, what did I do to deserve this? Listen, I don't know. Eliphaz doesn't know. Bildad doesn't know. Zophar doesn't know. But I know that God is, I know God delights in redeeming his people. He delights in setting them free. And whatever redemption you do not experience in this life, if you follow the Lord and believe in him, you will experience in the life to come. Now, there's this other friend that we've talked about before. His name is Elihu. And he comes along in chapter 33. And he also points to the redemption of God. And for sake of time, I'm not going to read this, but I would recommend reading Job chapter 33 and what Elihu says about um, man and his need for redemption. I'm just going to skip over to uh, verse 29 as we... uh, Look at this text where he says, Behold, God does all these things, twice, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he might be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job, listen to me. Be silent and I will speak. If you have words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent and I will teach you wisdom. So going back to that last phrase here in uh, verse number 30 to bring back his soul from the pit. Elihu here is also speaking of God the Redeemer. Redeeming his people from the pit. Redeeming his people from captivity. Redeeming his people from sin and from death and from sufferings. Do you understand? We don't know anything about Job's early life. But whatever led to Job being the righteous man he was by the time we meet him in chapter 1 is because of God's redemptive power in his life early on. And because Job put his trust in the God who redeems, he can hold out some hope that in due time, God will redeem him from this terrible pain. And that is why, rather than ultimately find ways to end his own life, Job continually says, I need to talk to God. I need to talk to God. And if I I can just get to him, if I can just get to him, he will vindicate me. He will justify me. He will redeem me. Otherwise, if, God, if Job didn't believe this to be true about God, why would he bother expressing himself? Why would he bother not giving up his integrity? He should have listened to his wife, curse God and die. Why did he bother seeking for a mediator? Why did he bother wanting to plead his cause? Because deep inside, no matter how dim or small, no matter how much pain he was enduring, Job still holds out hope that the God of redemption will vindicate him on that day. So why does God allow the righteous to suffer? I don't always know, and neither do you. But what we believe is true about God, that he is a God who delights to redeem his people, gives us hope that there's purpose in everything, even if we don't understand it. You see, there are things the friends didn't know, and I want to just give you three things that they didn't know, that even though it's true, that generally speaking, you reap what you sow, there's truth To some degree of the retribution principle, there's more to life than that. And there's three things that they did not know that, by God's grace, we know today. One is Satan and the cosmic battle. 
The friends had no concept of Satan here. No concept that there may be other things going on in the heavenly realms that we know as New Testament believers that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of the air. Satan made a wager with God, or at least tried to. Satan was trying to test God and test Job. Satan was telling God that Job is only uh, a God-fearer because you give him all this stuff. And God wants to demonstrate to Satan and thus to the principalities in power that Job's integrity remain intact for his glory. It's one thing to praise God and thank him for the stuff he gives us, but it's another thing to worship him in the midst of suffering. It brings God glory because at that point you are no longer worshiping God because you're happy. You're worshiping God because of who he is. You're appreciating him and you're saying, I will worship, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. This was to show forth God's glory to the cosmic powers that we cannot see, but that certainly exist. They didn't understand that. They also didn't understand the waiting principle. Their idea of retribution was now. You reap what you sow now. You, you sow good seeds then in harvest, you will reap them, right? You sin, God will punish you now. Everything's about immediacy, immediacy. It's almost like our, our society, right? Everything's instant, immediate. drive through, microwave, give it to me now. They didn't understand that in God's timing, sometimes we reap and then we have to wait and wait and wait. Why does Paul tell the Galatians, do not, do, do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due time, due time you will reap. Sometimes we pray once, God doesn't answer our prayer. Oh, I guess it doesn't work. Some people try to follow Christ. I tried that. Yeah, I went to church a few times, but you know, my marriage didn't improve, and my bank account didn't grow, and my health didn't improve. And We just want the immediate results, don't we? And I think that Eliphaz while he had some knowledge of the reaping and sowing principles of the Old Testament, he didn't understand that sometimes these things take a lot longer. God promised a Redeemer back in the book of Genesis. He did not give us the Redeemer in Genesis 4. The Bible says, in the fullness of time, then he sent forth his Son. And I challenge you, brother and sister, there may be things in your life right now that you are sowing good things, and you're wondering, where's the fruit? I'm teaching my children, but I don't see any fruit. I'm trying to do spiritual discipline in my life, but I I keep struggling with the same sin. I'm doing this, but I'm doing... Let me encourage you. Do not grow weary in well-doing. For in due time, you will reap if you do not faint. It is not immediate. God knows what's best, and His timing is always best. And the other thing that they did not understand is the cross and God's grace. If God only ruled the world with a retribution principle mindset, there would be no room for grace. Why would we even sing amazing grace? Because if the retribution principle is all that there is, we would all be condemned. Do this and live. Don't do this, or you'll be cursed. Why did God give that law to Israel? Which Israelite succeeded? 
Why is the Old Testament just an endless, seemingly endless cycle of Israel does good for a little bit, they get a little bit prideful, they go after other gods, they rebel, God warns them, they dismiss the prophets, finally, after calamity strikes, they repent, they come back to God, there's a renewal of the covenant, and then what happens? They fall again, right? And it's just this endless cycle. If all that there was was the retribution principle, Israel would have been wiped off. It would have been all forgotten. But God is faithful to his covenant, and God is a God of grace, and God is a God of redemption. And he gives second chances, and third chances, and fourth chances, and many, many chances, because ultimately, it's not by doing good that will save Israel. It's to point to Israel that they cannot do good. It's to point to us that ultimately, we need God's grace. And God's grace is most fully manifest for us in the cross. And so as we close with this section of the sermon, gospel light for days of darkness, I understand that many of the things that were said today were probably a little complex and confusing and maybe not even clear, and I do apologize for that. But if I could leave you with this, when you think about this question of the righteous suffering, may the Lord drive your eyes to Christ. Christ is the righteous one. He's referred to in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, as Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, yes, like I said earlier, Job was righteous because God said that he was. Abraham was righteous because God reckoned it to him by faith. Noah was righteous and found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But despite that, we know that in their very nature, they were still sinners. But there is one, and only one, who did not inherit original sin because he was born of a virgin. There is one who is the perfect and spotless Lamb of God. That when we say that Jesus Christ is the righteous, we don't mean that God just considers him righteous. We mean that he never sinned. That he was tempted in all points like us, yet without sin. So while Job might have been the most extreme example of righteousness in his day, the only purely righteous person to ever walk this earth is Jesus Christ. He is the spotless Lamb of God. And when you look at righteousness in this way, then R.C. Sproul's famous quote makes more sense when he says, why do bad things happen to good people? That only happened once, and he volunteered. The God of redemption used the greatest crime in the world against the most innocent person in the world in order to produce the greatest benefit to the world. If you don't believe that suffering has purpose and God can bring something out of it, look no further than the cross of Christ. Because if Job suffered unrighteously, how much more would the perfect Son of God, who never committed sin once, There was no deceit in his mouth, no violence in his words. He only did everything perfectly every single time without fail. And what happened? They nailed him to a cross. The early church understood this. And when the early church in Acts chapter 4 was enduring persecution, they prayed together in verse 24, lifting their voices to God and saying, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? 
the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you see that? The early church, when they prayed to God in the midst of their own suffering, said, Lord, we commit this to you because we know that your son died on the cross according to your plan. Who put Jesus on the cross? Was it the peoples of Israel? Verse 27 says the peoples of Israel. Yes, it was them. Was it the Gentiles? Verse 27 says, yes, it was them. Was it Pontius Pilate? Yeah, he was at fault too. Was it Herod? Yes, he was at fault too. But ultimately, who's in control according to verse 28? The hand of God. God sent his son using all of the chess pieces he has here in this world and his divine sovereignty, even the wicked thoughts of men, to put his son on the cross. And if he did not do that, we would not be redeemed. Think about that. God used the greatest crime in the history of the world against the most innocent man in the history of the world to produce the greatest benefit of the world because Christ went to the cross, we can have our sins forgiven. So Job's suffering is just a foreshadow of the most righteous person, completely flawless, sinless and spotless, suffering even more Because on the cross he bore the sin and the shame and the guilt. Feeling abandoned by God. Suffering humiliation to open shame. Bleeding and suffering to death. And descending to the realm of the dead. Christ went from glory to shame. There's no greater chasm than that. But because he went from glory to shame. In his death he defeated Satan. In his death he conquered death by rising from the grave. Because of his death, we find forgiveness of sins and justification before God. When we look at the cross, we find light from darkness, life from death, hope from hopelessness, fellowship with God from separation from God. And all of this because because Christ willingly went for us. He became a curse for us. He absorbed our suffering. As Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us. God of redemption redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us as it is written. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He absorbed, as Tim Keller said, the essence of forgiveness is absorbing pain instead of giving it. And because of the suffering, we can know this, brothers and sisters, you can know, number one, that suffering will one day be no more. As Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If you're wondering why suffering is happening, I understand the darkness and the depth of that question. I don't have all the answers, but I do have this. Because Christ rose from the grave, there's a day where there will be no more suffering. Secondly, current suffering identifies us with Christ. If you're a Christian, you are considered righteous. Pretty crazy to think about, right? Because maybe this week you had a lot of 
flaws and lack of victory and lack of discipline. You might even feel self-condemned. Let me tell you what God says about you is that you are made righteous in Christ. But yet you might suffer. There might be a cosmic battle for your soul. There may be those who seek to persecute you for your faith. What can I encourage you with is this, that a man can be right with God, Bildad. Yes, a man can be right with God because by his stripes we are healed. By his cross we are saved. But as Peter says, you share Christ's sufferings. It identifies you with Christ. In suffering, there is greater unity with God than even in blessing because Christ suffered for us When we suffer, we suffer with him. You are not alone. It identifies you with him. And finally, suffering will be redeemed and used for God's glorious purposes. As Richard Belcher said, suffering is not meaningless because we see how God accomplishes purposes for our salvation through the greater suffering of Christ. We can commit ourselves to God even in suffering Because we are confident that God can accomplish his purposes through our suffering. Our suffering is not in vain in the Lord. I want you to understand that. Your suffering is not in vain. It's not meaningless. It's not random. It's not purposeless. Even though we may not always be able to diagnose exactly why, God is up to something. He is the God who redeems Just like the disciples asked Jesus about the blind man. Who sinned? It's almost like Eliphaz is back. Who sinned that this man would be born blind? Was it him or his parents? And Jesus said, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Perhaps God is glorifying himself through your suffering in ways you cannot understand in the moment. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let me close by reading the last two verses of the hymn in the 1600s called Whatever My God Ordains is Right. Whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true each morn anew, Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to Him I leave it all. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you can take confidence that your suffering is ordained by God for whatever reason that you can trust even if you don't see it now and you can leave it all to Him. Let's take some time